Good morning, Christ Church. Karl Marx famously wrote that philosophers have only interpreted the world differently. But the point is, however, to change it. And however dissimilar communism and Christianity are, on this point they're agreed that there is something wrong and broken with the world. And aren't we called to do something about it? Isn't there something, some action that we should do to make things right again? We're continuing looking at our summer series. We've been going through this book called Simply Christian by N.T. Wright, and our sermon series have been following along with him. And where we are right now, we're in the middle of telling the story of Scripture, what he calls staring at the sun, how Christianity makes sense of everything else in the world, including this longing to see the world remade, this longing to see the world made right. I want to put a slide up here that outlines where we've been over this summer And uh, we started with kind of maybe the first part. We called it Echoes of a Voice. And uh, the way N.T. Wright explains it is that all of us have these longings that are echoes of a voice, these longings for justice and spirituality and relationships and beauty. We see these longings, and it's like we're hearing the echo of a voice that are meant to lead us back to God. Now we're in the middle part of of the story, staring at the stun, how Christianity tells this grand story of God and the heavens and the earth and what's gone wrong and how God's doing something to put them back together. And then beginning next week, we'll go, we'll turn the corner to the last part, reflecting the image, how we are called to bear and reflect God's image, his kindness, his love in the world. And today we're moving specifically to the last part, part four of the story of scripture, the sending of the Spirit. And the outline for what we're going to talk about today, it's really going to work at kind of like this macro level and then a very micro personal level. So the macro level is within the whole story of the Bible, where does the sending of the Spirit come and what does that have to do with the church today? That's the big picture that we're looking at. And then we're going to look at it personally, micro level, for each of us, what does it feel like? What does it mean to be filled with this Spirit The big picture, where is this in the story of God? And then how do I link up with that? How do I get involved in that? And what does that have to do with my day-to-day life? So uh, if you've got your Bible, you want to open up to Jeremiah 31, or if you've got a bulletin with the scripture insert in it, look at that first reading, Jeremiah 31. And remember, uh, this is part four of God's story of the rescue. Part one was God, heavens, and earth... God creating everything, part two, was things have gone wrong. God uh, reaches out to one family, the family of Abraham, and through Abraham and this nation of Israel, God is working to bring healing and wholeness to the world. Part three last week was uh, Father Cliff speaking about Jesus Christ as the hinge point. Remember, Jesus fulfills, he's the king. He's the the one, the temple, who carries God's presence. New creation goes wherever he is, um, and he's giving a new law at that time. And today, part four, the Spirit. And where I want us to start with the Spirit is in this promise from Jeremiah 31. This is called the New Covenant. It's a prophecy in the Old Testament, 500 uh, or 600 years or so before Jesus ever was born. This is a promise to the nation of Israel. I'm going to read the last two verses, verse 33 and 34. And God speaks to Israel and says, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write my law on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because all of them 
They will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. This is called the New Covenant, and I want to frame this by what we talked about a couple of weeks ago with some of the covenants that make up uh, the story of the Old Testament. As a way of reminder, this first one, the Abrahamic Covenant. you remember this? Uh, that God made this covenant with Abraham that all peoples are going, to be bl- are going to be blessed through Abraham and through his descendants. This next one, the Mosaic Covenant, you remember, uh, was really made to the people of Israel after they've come out of Egypt, and God gives them this law and says, if you will be my people, if you will obey me, you will be my people, you will be a kingdom of priests who do what? Represent me to the rest of the world. That's your mission, to represent me by living and following this law to the rest of the world. Then we talked about the Davidic covenant. This was one made to David that one of David's sons, one of his descendants, will always be on the throne, always be the king of Israel. And these three covenants form the backbone of what we call the Old Testament, and especially the Mosaic one. The Mosaic one is, in fact, the one that we call the Old Covenant in contrast to the New Covenant. The Mosaic one was kind of, I mean, it's hard to overstate how important this was for daily living in the life of Israel. It dictated all of your relationships. It gave you the law that you were to follow, gave you the ceremonial life. I mean, it, it just sort of stipulated, it was a constitution for what it was to be Israel. In the ancient world, when Israel was formed, covenants were a common pledged agreement between people. So covenant, it's not like some special Christian word, this word covenant. That was the common contractual language of the ancient world. Just as we would talk about contracts today, covenants were uh, the, the common contractual agreement of the ancient world. But what is uniquely Christian, or what is uniquely a part of the story of God, is that when a covenant was formed, It was formed between a stronger party and a weaker party. And if the weaker party failed to uphold their end of the bargain of the covenant, then the stronger party had full authority to wipe out, to kill, to destroy the weaker party. And you would see this happen in the Old Testament where you'd see this in the ancient Near East where different civilizations would make covenants with one another. One would break it. The other one would wipe them out. That was the prerogative. That's the stipulation, the terms of the deal. So when Israel doesn't live up to fully obeying the Mosaic law, God has the opportunity, he is in his full rights, to completely wipe them out. And yet what we see instead is the graciousness of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God, to do not what we would expect, wipe them out, but instead to offer them a new covenant, the one that we just read about this morning, to give them another chance to follow him. It goes along with our prayer that you might have uh, noticed as we were praying our collect this morning. God Almighty, who is chiefly known in the way he shows mercy. You see God here in the Old Testament showing mercy to this nation of Israel by promising, I will give you a new covenant. Now look at what he says in uh, chapter 31, verse 33 and 34. Jeremiah 31. Here's the Moses. God is going to take the moral law that Israel was struggling to keep. And instead of making it something external that they're always striving to follow, he's going to write it on their hearts so that they desire to follow it. He's going to take what's outside of them and make it inside, changing even their desires for holiness. Now, you might wonder, why does God care so much about this moral law? Like, what's the deal with all the commands? What's the deal with all the law? And the reason God cares so much about this is because it's an expression of who he is. 
God is perfect love, and the laws he gives are an expression of perfect love. Like if Israel could have perfectly kept them, they would have perfectly loved their neighbor, they would have perfectly loved God. But because of sin in our lives, because of sin in Israel's life, they aren't able to keep this. So these laws, you might think of them as like they're leaders. They're um, on like a hike. They're the one who knows the way. They're pointing you the right way that you're supposed to be going to lead you back to God. The problem was Israel's inability to keep the law. And so what God says is in this new covenant, I will take this external thing that you haven't been able to keep and I will make it internal on your heart so that you desire to keep it. You desire to obey the law. You desire to live like me. That's the first promise. Second promise is that the knowledge of God will be available for all regardless of social status. It says no longer will a person teach their neighbor saying, know the Lord. No longer will people go around saying this is who God is. Everyone will have access to God. Men and women, the older, the younger, whether you are the king, whether you are a pauper, everyone will have access to God. No one is to be discriminated. No one is to be left out. We'll see a little bit more about this in just a moment as we talk about the relationship between the Israelites and the Gentiles. But God's heart is that in this new covenant, there is grace and mercy extended to everyone. The third promise is that there's a full forgiveness of sins. Not just a partial forgiveness at the temple, not just going back to the temple year after year and offering the same sacrifices over and over again, but a final sacrifice that makes you whole and clean and no longer ashamed of who you are, something that makes you brand new. Last week, we looked at Jesus and how Jesus Christ is a hinge point of this whole story. He is the one who institutes this new covenant. When Jesus offers his body on the cross, he is beginning this new covenant, and he reminds us that as often as we gather, whenever we gather, that we would remember this new covenant by taking this bread and this wine, reminding ourselves of his sacrifice on the cross. Okay, so how does the Spirit relate into this? Well, I want to walk through one more image, if we can go to this next one. And um, I know that in seminary, they do not teach graphic design. My wife was like, did you draw a bow tie? I mean, what? <laughs> if that helps you remember it, sure, a bow tie turned on its side. But look, what, what I'm trying to get across here is that all of, all of the Old Testament, all the promises we just talked about of Abraham, of Moses, of David, the promises that through Abraham, the world's going to be blessed, that through Moses, there's a, a, a people being gathered who live as a kingdom of priests. Through David, there's a, a ruling and reigning king. All of these promises are going to find their full fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And the New Testament knows exactly this is what's going on. The, the authors of the New Testament want to show you this is what's happening. So you'll have Paul saying things like this in Galatians chapter 3. If we go to the next slide. He'll say, He, Jesus, redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. In other words, that promise to Abraham gets centered down on Jesus. And what Jesus does by living as a descendant of Abraham and as a faithful Jew, fully keeping the law, and then by dying on the cross, in some mysterious way he has opened up this blessing to all peoples, to all of humanity, Jews and Gentiles, through the Spirit. We can see the author of Hebrews write things like this. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as a builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. In other words, here is the better Moses, 
the one who takes a new people group, Jews and Gentiles, to make them a kingdom of priests, to communicate God's presence to the world. And then regarding David, Paul writes this. He says, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel. Which I actually think this is the shortest summary of the gospel you'll see in the New Testament. Remember Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, the king. That's the gospel. True king over all. Let's put that first image up again. And you can see how Jesus is the hinge point from the nation of Israel to the church. He takes the people of God by birth, the Jews, the Israelites, and he opens up their blessing that all people might receive through faith the blessings of Abraham, be reconnected to God, to be remade. Jews and Gentiles fully grafted into the family of God, but always starting with the Jews because that's where the promises first came to the Jews. That's why you see statements like these in Romans 1.16, a very famous passage I'm sure many of you know. Paul is saying that whenever we preach the gospel, the good news about this new reached out and put their faith into Jesus Christ and somehow all the blessings that God has always promised begin coming to you through this Holy Spirit. The new covenant said the law of love will be written on their hearts and that is indeed what happens, that suddenly you find yourself through the Spirit desiring to live like God desires you to live. Desiring to keep the law, not to impress him, not to think I'm, I'm making God happy by doing this, but out of a genuine love of saying, I can't help but desire to love my God. It's the most important thing I have in the world is to offer my life somehow as an offering and a sacrifice back to him. That's what's happened as the spirit begins to come into you. You're grafted into these promises, receiving all the promises and desiring to live what my friend calls brand new. Just desiring a brand new style of life. The church is born through the Spirit coming down. Law of love written on your hearts. And here you have in the church, for the first time in history, you have a nation scattered among the nations. You might almost call the church a supra-nation, a nation above the nations. Because the church is comprised of people from all ethnicities, Jew, Gentile, but all ethnicities welcomed here. From men and from women. The young and the old. Everyone is permitted to belong to this church and they share a common allegiance to King Jesus. Here you have a people who are desiring, the church desires to live such an ethical life that in the ancient world, it was said the type of life the church lived was vice, not virtue. Because the ancient world looked at this church, this group of people under allegiance to King Jesus, and when they saw the church doing things like loving the poor, having compassion on the vulnerable, not just loving people up the social ladder, but loving those down the social ladder as well. When they saw such regard for people who didn't look like them, they said, those aren't virtues, those are vices. Humility, like we see in the church, isn't a virtue, but it's a vice. It's what the ancient world said. It was so, I mean, all the philosophers, you look at uh, Plato, you look at Aristotle and what it takes to be a virtuous human. It's like exactly contradictory to what the church was proclaiming, to be someone who is meek, Someone who is ruled by humility and charity. Someone who doesn't think of themselves too much. Someone who has no regard for their own ego. That this kind of lifestyle was totally alien to the ancient world. But remember the promise, I will write my law on your hearts. You know, sometimes this word church, we start to talk about the church. It carries certain baggage with it. 
And, you know, over the last 10 years, you can probably think through uh, different church leaders who have fallen prey to serious sin and whether through embezzling money or some serious moral failure, sexual failure, have been kicked out of the church or abuse of power. We see these things happening and you start to wonder, is the church any good at all? Like, does the church actually have a place in God's plan? Carries all this baggage with it. N.T. Wright, in his book, Simply Christian, he addresses this very concern, and he, he's got a, a lengthy quote that I want to read to you. He writes, I use the word church here with a somewhat heavy heart. I know that for many of my readers, that very word will carry the overtones of large, dark buildings, pompous religious pronouncements, false solemnity, and rank hypocrisy. I, too, feel the weight of that negative image. But there's also another side to it. For many, church means just the opposite of that negative image. It's the place of welcome and laughter, of healing and hope, of friends and family and a just and new life. It's where the homeless drop in for a bowl of soup and the elderly stop by for a chat. It's where one group is working to help drug addicts and another group is campaigning for global justice, the church. It's where you'll find people learning to pray, people coming to faith, people struggling with temptation, people finding new purpose, People getting in touch with the new power to carry that purpose out. It's where people bring their own small mustard seed faith and discover that in getting together with others to worship the one true God, that somehow the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts. And the church is a bit of a mixed bag in history, and yet still this is the, the engine of how God is desiring to make the world right again. Philosophers have only interpreted the world differently, but the point is, however, to change it. God has given us the church. I was talking with a, a young scholar recently. He's working on a, a research project. It's really fascinating. Um, it's building on the thesis that um, the early church spread so rapidly. There's this question. How did the early church spread so rapidly? The small movement in Galilee, this kind of outskirt town, how did it in 300 years overtake the Roman Empire so much so that the emperor himself converted to Christianity? Like, how did that 300-year spread happen? And so different scholars talk about it, and one of the going hypotheses is the church did it by their love, this radical love. And so this young scholar I'm talking to is kind of building on that thesis, that this upside-down group of people, the church, uh, is the way they love the world is what's so compelling. It's why so many people are flocking to becoming Christians. So he writes, and he and I were dialoguing back and forth, and we were exchanging some messages, and he wrote this. He said, for early Christians, evangelism was more than doctrine, but the doctrines became linked to a new ethical code. And the Christian message of cosmic salvation, themes like atonement on the cross, adoption as God's beloved children, the way those were embodied was in caring for the poor. That what the church did is recognizing they had been loved by a God who stepped down into the world, offered his body on the cross to bring us back into relationship with him. They took that message and they said, we don't just think about that. We embody that in the way that we care for the least of these. It's one of the reasons you hear us talking so much about Matthew 25 and issues of justice around here is because we think it is so uh, just tied to what the gospel actually is. The enemies of God the undeserving ones becoming justified, becoming being made new, being brought into the family. He writes, Christian evangelists did not win. Oh, get this. This is really good when he wrote this. Christian evangelists did not win the respective outsiders 
by their proximity to power, but by their proximity to the poor. That's the law of love written on your heart by the Holy Spirit. So you have statements like this from early Christian apologists. This is from Athenagoras. He says, among us, the Christians, you will find some uneducated people who, if they are unable in words to prove our doctrine, they don't make long speeches. Instead, they make holy lives. You can't convince people with your words how good this God is who's rescued you. Live a holy, faithful life, a life burning aflame with God's love for the world. That's what he says. Then there's this pagan emperor, Julian the Apostate, and you might have heard of him before. He, um, he's writing a letter. He hastily writes a letter to all the pagan priests. He's really flummoxed at this point because the pagan priests aren't doing nearly the work that the Christians are doing. So he writes this. He says, nothing has contributed so much to the progress of the superstition of the Christians, right? That's what he calls the Christians, this superstitious group, as their charity to strangers. These godless Galileans who don't believe in our pantheon of gods provide not only for their own poor, but they provide for ours as well. And what the emperor is saying to his pagan priests is he says, priests, get it together. You got these Christians over here who don't even believe in Zeus and the rest of them. And they're out loving us. Can you guys not do some charity works? Can you get on board with this? Philosophers have only interpreted the world differently. But the point is to change it. The law of love written on your heart makes the difference from the Spirit. Where do the Christians get this love? These early Christians. Where do they get this courage to stand in the arenas? It was the love of Christ put into their hearts through the Spirit. You cannot manufacture love like this. You cannot, through willpower, try and love. Like, if you ever, is there anyone who ever, just think in your mind right now, don't say a name. Is there anyone who ever just, like, gets on your nerves? <laughs> Someone that you just disagree with. You see them posting on social media. You see their presence somewhere in your life. Maybe you're intimately related to this person in some kind of way. <laughs> and you just think, I know what I'm supposed to do, and I can't. You cannot manufacture love. You must receive it from God who loves you in order to offer it to others. You love others, even the ones who feel enemy of you, even the ones not just to annoy you, but the ones who are opposed to you. You love others for the sake of loving God because your love for them is actually a love for him. It's the way it works. If you want to transform society, it's not through online debates. It's not through mocking others. That doesn't work. Because scripture teaches you cannot have kingdom values apart from the spirit in your life. Here is the power that changes the world. Holy love. Sacrificial service. Fueled by the constant flame of the spirit in your life. Writing God's holy law on your heart so that you desire to live the way that God made you to live. That changes. That transforms. That makes societies different. Christians are not those who know the most. We're engaged in education. We're engaged in thoughtfulness. But we are not the ones who know the most. We are called to be the ones who love the most. And this love, not from our own willpower, but the love that's come down from the heights of heaven, given to us now through the Spirit. Okay, that is the macro story. I say we're going to look at the macro story and then the micro story. That is the macro story of the story of the church and how God is fulfilling all of these covenants in Jesus Starting a new covenant and look kind of feel like reading. Speaking with Nic Nicodemus, and he says, if you want to know what it is to be in the Spirit, he says, you must be born again. 
That's the analogy. You must be born again. And you've probably heard that quite a bit. What does it mean? It means that you must go back to the starting point such that the values that you have valued, when in comparison to the kingdom values, you feel like, I didn't even realize God had a totally different way. I didn't even realize that the desires I desired weren't God's desires. He had these other set of desires. It'll feel like receiving the Spirit will feel like stepping into the world for the first time all over again and having to relearn what the real values really are and what God's priorities really are because your whole life you've been living by a different set of values. It'll feel like a new birth. Paul, in our reading from Romans chapter 8, if you look at that, Look at your chapter, Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. He says, what does it feel like to be led by the Spirit? It'll feel like an adoption. It'll feel like you've been adopted by a heavenly Father, like the heavenly Father has reached down and scooped you up and held you. It'll feel a little bit like that. This total sense of belovedness that God has embraced you with the deepest sense of knowing you, that anyone could possibly know you, and he's chosen to embrace you, to pull you close to himself. Like, have you ever walked into a room and felt yourself totally at ease among people? Have you ever walked into a room and maybe it's a, a group of college friends or maybe you're coming home to, uh, to, you've been away on a work trip, you're coming home to a spouse. Or maybe you're coming home uh, back, you're visiting your parents' home and they've got something waiting for you, a special treat just for you. you have you ever walked into a room and you felt yourself totally accepted? People were waiting on you. People were looking forward to seeing you that you belong, you're part of the family when you walk into that room. That's like a micro sense of this spirit of adoption I'm talking about, that God so deeply picks you up and holds you that you totally belong to him. You might almost call this a freedom with God. Freedom, it's that sense that my kids have to freely interrupt me without qualms. Freedom to come in for hugs and hellos no matter what I'm doing. The freedom to be angry with me. The freedom with God. Paul says being filled and led by the Spirit, it's like, this is in verse 23 through 25 in Romans 8. He says it's like having a hope that things might be wrong in your life. Like you might be suffering in some kind of way. You might be undergoing a serious trial. But it's not, it's not keeping you down because you're able to hope this is not the end. God will make all things new. He will do something brand new. He will renovate this. He will make this right. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I trust. I can patiently wait. He will make it right. What does it feel like to be spirit-filled? Cannot generate love. It's the daily practice of putting yourself before God and saying, God, here I am, small, outcast, sometimes miserable, whining person that I am. I belong in the Isle of Misfit Toys, you know? Here I am, God, with all of my foibles, all my mistakes, all my mess-ups, and yet I offer my heart to you. Would you today fill me fresh with your love that I can't manufacture so that I might love those around me that you've put in my life? You cannot generate this kind of love. It must be received. And so Christ Church, for you, the question is, and this is part of the micro story, are you daily living in step with the Spirit? Are you daily walking with this Holy Spirit who loves you? who wants to renovate your heart, who wants to take the old you and continue to make you brand new, who wants to take this external law and write it on your heart so that you desire, out of just a fullness of being accepted by God, you desire to share with everyone how good and how beautiful he is. Are you living in step with the Spirit? I want to share a story. 
Um, how many of you like roller coasters? Okay, quite a few. Much more than the 9 a.m. service. <laughs> Father Herb does not. We talked about this earlier. There's, there's a minimum height requirement and then a maximum height requirement. And if you can't get those bars over you on a roller coaster, it is a scary moment. I love roller coasters. I, just, I genuinely love them from the earliest of my childhood. I can remember I love riding roller coasters, those thrill rides. And our family recently, we were down uh, in Galveston at the beach. And we've been going to Galveston for about four years now. And there's a, a pier. It's called Pleasure Pier where they've built kind of a carnival amusement park that extends out over the water. And, um, and there's a, a roller coaster there. It's called the Iron Shark. And uh, it is, you know, on a pier that size, it's about 30 seconds but let me tell you, that is 30 exhilarating seconds because it goes from zero to max speed as quick as it can. And by the time you're realizing what's going on, the ride's about to end. You can hear people screaming from this thing all up and down the pier. So last year, I took my two kids to it, my two oldest kids. And we get, to the, we get out on the pier, and I'm telling them, I'm like, hey, you guys are going to love this. We're going to ride the roller coaster. I love it. It's my favorite, Iron Shark. Let's get on this thing. We get in line, and you, know, you start to see little antsy, they're getting worked up, getting not too sure they want to do this thing. Um, we had to, we got to get out of line. It's just, that, that's, not the year, that's not the year for them last year. And so I'm telling them all about this. I'm saying, hey, look, dad loves writing these things. I think you're going to love it too. We go back this year and we get there early. We get the all-day passes and we get there early and the line is, I mean, it's short. It's like five people. You get in line and you can see the front and you're thinking, I'm next. And they're doing it. They're going to they're gonna do it. Dad, this is the year we're going to do it. So we get in, and you know, all the jitters are happening. You know, I think one of them, maybe it was me, might have been crying. We're just so, <laughs> so nervous about what's about to happen. We get on this thing, and then the buckles come down. And once they come down, there's no turning back. And that guy, you know, the, the conductors who they've been to school for this, they, they press go, and you're off, right? Like, that thing's happening. The way this works the way this works on the pier is it starts you horizontal and then it goes vertical. It goes 90 degrees because it's a short pier and it's got to quickly get you up to the top. So you're just clicking all the way up. <laughs> and as soon as you hit the top, it's go, baby. All right. So you're just going straight down and the thing drops. It drops inverted. It drops down and backwards before it goes. And then it's upside down. It's corkscrewing. It's everything. And again, 20 seconds and you're done. The ride's over. And I'm looking at the kids, and their hair's all whipping around, and they're laughing, and I'm saying, what'd you think? And they said, we loved it. We went back and rode the thing. One of them rode it four, more, four times. They just could not get enough of how much they loved that ride. And I said, you, you had to experience it. You had to get on. I know that I loved it, and I was telling you about it. You had to get on there and experience it, but I knew you were going to love it. And that is life with the Spirit. You must experience Him. You cannot be at a distance, at an arm's length, saying, I know about God. You can't say, I had an experience with God 20 years ago, and I'm just living on the residual energy of that. Life with the Spirit is daily writing, experiencing, trusting, saying, God, here I am. Pour your love into my heart, and then use me as part of this church this body of believers, not just Christ church, but all over the globe, the church, use me to bring your love, your healing, your forgiveness to all peoples, that all peoples might know you are the one true God who loves all of humanity. The new covenant, the law of love written on your heart, the spirit breathing life into each of us, the church, faithful group of Jews and Gentiles through faith in Christ. 
Philosophers have only interpreted the world differently. The point is to change it. The Spirit has breathed into life the church that the world might be changed. Amen.